0: We're back in the book of 1st John, and just to do a quick review of our passage from last week. In 1st John, chapter 3, verse 10, it says, By this it is evident, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And the apostle John, who's known as the apostle of love, he's also known as the black and white apostle because he speaks in contrast. He sets one thing against one another. If the Apostle Paul was an Apostle of Exceptions, John is an Apostle of Absolutes. And he makes it clear in this verse that our spiritual heritage is either divine or demonic. You are either a child of God or a child of the devil, and there's no middle ground. By nature we are dead in our trespasses, and by nature we are children of wrath. But in God's great mercy, by grace, we are children of God. And so the entire world belongs to one of these two families. You are either of the family of darkness and unknowingly ensnared by the evil one, or you are of the family of light. John speaks very clearly and very plainly. And it's John's desire and God's desire that those who are children of God should know that. They should be confident in that. Be assured in that. I'm a child of God. That is who I am. And that drives us. That wakes us up. That motivates us. And it's what's most valuable to us. I am his. He is mine. He is my father and I am his child. And this church had gone through some kind of split where there were false teachers who had left the church who are now pointing fingers at the church and saying they're not really Christians. They don't have the new knowledge. They don't have the experience that we have. And maybe some in the church were wondering if they really were children of God or if they had been deceived. And so the Apostle John, who's like a spiritual grandfather to them, he's trying to protect them. He's trying to encourage them that they are children of God and he wants them to know that. They have everything they need. And so you can know that you're a child of God by three tests. First, you have faith and believe in Christ, that he came in the flesh, that he is God divine, and therefore you know you have fellowship with God. Secondly, you walk in the light as he is light, God is light and therefore his children will walk in the light which includes repentance and righteousness. Third, God is love and therefore his children will walk in love and love one another. These are not ways we earn salvation, but they are signposts that tell us we're on the right path. They are the fruit of salvation, not the root of salvation. And I can say in my experience that most people who struggle with assurance of salvation, they are Christians When I find someone sincerely struggling with their assurance of salvation, it's more likely than not that they are a believer. It's stranger to me to meet a non-Christian struggling with the lack of assurance because why would you even care about God's ways and laws if the Spirit of God wasn't working in you? And if you're struggling with the question, am I really saved? I hope myself and our church can be the type of place where even when you're doubting your salvation and full of fear and anxiety, you can come and lay your burdens with us. And so today we're focusing on the third test, the test of love. God's children are called to love one another and resemble their heavenly Father, who is love. And so for note takers, there's going to be three points for today's sermon first, the test of love. Secondly, the illustration of love. And third, the assurance of love. The test, the illustration, the assurance. And so we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3 verses 11 through 24, but let's start in verse 11 through 15 in 1 John. 1 John chapter 3 verse 11 through 15 starting with the test of love. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so starting in verse 11, he calls us to something he's already called us to in First John. He calls us to love one another. But what does that mean? And he starts by giving us a negative example. Don't be like Cain. And oftentimes we don't always want to look at different characters in the Bible and just think of them as examples, but that's what John does here. He's going to use Cain as an example, and then he's going to use Jesus as an example. Don't be like Cain. And if you're not familiar with Cain, he's an Old Testament figure in Genesis chapter 4 who killed his brother. And in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, I'll just read this for us. We see the story of Cain and Abel, where in verse one it says, Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a sheep keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And this is such a picture of the damaging effects of the fall and how corrupt sin is. This takes place right after the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Cain was the first child ever born into the world. And soon after, he has the first sibling, Abel. And Cain, throughout the Bible, is a prototype of, he's a picture of a lost and damned sinner. In exa- for an example, in Jude, chapter, uh, Jude 11, it says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. And we can assume that Adam and Eve, after Genesis chapter 3, they probably explained to their children certain things. They explained to Cain and Abel about the fall about the garden, how they had to leave the garden paradise, and how even then God showed them grace in covering them in their sin. We can assume that they also explained to Cain and Abel how to offer a right offering, how to approach God. And we don't know exactly why God did not look with favor on Cain's offering. It doesn't really make it explicitly clear, But once Cain realizes that God doesn't look with favor at his offering, his face is downcast. He gets angry. And God gives him another chance as well as a warning. If you do right, won't you be accepted? Sin is crouching at your door. You better get a hold of yourself. You better deal with your sin, God says. This attitude that you have over being rejected because you approached me in the wrong way The anger that is coming up because your brother's offering was accepted and yours was not. Its desire is to rule over you. And if you don't master this, it's going to take over you. And Cain is at a crossroads between life and death, hell and eternal life. he can repent and receive grace, or he could continue in his sin. In verse 8 of Genesis 4 says, Cain spoke to, his, to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Instead of repenting, Cain refused to turn from sin. He rejects God's word and God's command. He becomes mastered by sin and he murders his brother Abel. And John asks the question that we want to ask, why did Cain murder Abel? Why did he kill his brother? It's because Cain's own deeds were evil and Abel's were righteous and evil hates righteousness. Unrighteousness can't stand Righteousness. And instead of getting it right the second time, Cain becomes jealous, which leads to hatred, which leads to murder. Jealousy, to hatred, to murder. And John makes it clear, don't be like Cain. This is the opposite of brotherly love. And we'd probably be pretty quick to point out that, hey, we're not like Cain. We're not in that category. We're not physical murderers. But John was writing to these Christians for a reason, and they weren't physical murderers. And we shouldn't be too quick to think this doesn't apply to us. Chances are, chances are, you and I vastly underestimate our capacity for evil and sin. We are worse than we think. We shouldn't think too highly of ourselves. There's darkness in us, and where does it show up the most? In interpersonal relationships. In our relationships, wouldn't life be so much easier if we just didn't have to deal with people? And there's darkness in us that doesn't like righteousness. We become jealous of the life others have. We can even become jealous of the righteousness that they have. That's how much we could twist things. John says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That's a pretty serious thing, that's pretty heavy. And he was a good student. He was a good listener to Jesus when he preached on the Sermon on the Mount. And he heard these things from the beginning. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 22, Jesus said, and John was there, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus says, you are full of anger? You are a murderer. John says, you hate your brother? You are a murderer. Because the only difference is the act, not the attitude. And we kill them with our words, our thoughts, our hearts, and anger and hatred are the drawn sword of human relationships. Before the sword strikes, it's drawn, and the first feeling of anger or irritation or annoyance or hatred is when the hand begins to move. And as it progresses, the sword is unsheathed, and at its peak, it's waved in the air, ready to strike. It starts with anger, which may lead to the word or the deed. It's the feeling that leads to an action, and Jesus tells us that anger has within it the same seeds of murder. And it'll show up in all types of different ways, whether it's resentment, bitterness, irritation, grumbling, sarcasm, envy, hatred, indifference. It's there, it's deep in us, and we can hold on to a bitter spirit or an attitude that refuses to forgive, and Scripture says, don't let that master you. Sin is crouching at the door, you're at the crossroads, you must rule over it. And this will be a pivotal point in your life as a believer, where you can either repent or you can love one another. Where you're confronted with the word of God, where others plead with you to repent and obey, or you can go your own way and set up your own self-made prison of bitterness and unforgiveness. Alistair Begg says the spirit of hatred and the fullness of Christ cannot coexist in the heart of man. One must drive out the other. It cannot be both. And when our lives are dominated by hatred, the eternal life of God will not dwell there. To say, I love God with all my heart, but I hate you. No one who continues in that type of posture can claim eternal life. And what's scary is, you know, I'll go to Sunday services, I'll go to prayer meetings, I'll sing the songs, we'll serve in the church, we'll participate in a friendly manner, thinking, oh, I'm doing all of that. I'm fine. And First John chapter 3 says you're in danger. But the difference is, are you going to turn your eye away? Are you blind to that danger? Are you giving into it? Are you so stubborn where you can't even acknowledge it? I would like to say that for the most part, our church, most people in our church, we have to acknowledge that I have an anger problem. And if you deny your anger, nothing will change. If you admit it, you at least show you're not totally blinded and controlled by it. And earlier in 1 John chapter 2, John said, Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And that's what hatred does. That's what anger does. Isn't it true? Like right after, like you calm down from your anger, you look back and it's like, man, what was I thinking? We're just overwhelmed by it. We lose control of ourselves. We're blind. And anger creates a distorted view of reality where we only see things through the lens of our anger. We're expert lawyers. And we hold on to our jaded view and we can't listen to the other person's point of view. We're blind. We're self-deceived. We're of the devil because that's what Satan wants. He wants us to be deceived. Hatred and anger give opportunity to Satan. It gives a platform to Satan, Paul says, to come into your life. And when it's unresolved and untreated, it'll destroy and lead to murder in our hearts. Where we'll want to eliminate that person or banish them as if they never existed. Is sin crouching at your door? Are you being mastered by it? Are you being ruled by it or are you repenting and seeking the Lord? And when you're consumed with anger and blinded by it, what's pretty much The last thing on your mind, forgiveness. Showing grace. And this is probably one of the hardest points for some of us to swallow. But we need to be deeply humbled by the love of God that loved us even in the depths and ugliness of our own sin. This is where I just feel such inadequacy, rightfully feel such inadequacy as a preacher because I could say, forgive, forgive. But no one's going to be lectured into doing that. It's going to be God working in your heart. And the only thing we can do before each other as a church is to set before one another the grace of God, the gospel of grace. And God has to work in you And maybe he is working in you right now, and you know it. And you want so badly to hold on to your sin. John says, think of Cain. He's the opposite of brotherly love. He hated the the faith of his brother. Abel walked in faith. Cain hated that, and it led to murder. There's more than one way to murder, and there's no place for that in the family of God. And what may be the most difficult thing about being a follower of Christ is that when other people hate you, we shouldn't follow their lead. We shouldn't hate them. You can't reflect back to them what they are doing to you. If they trash you, we want so badly to trash them. If they misrepresent you, you want so badly to prove them wrong, to show that you are righteous. And we want to respond in a hateful way. But that's of Cain. Not of Abel and definitely not of Christ. When you respond to opposition instead by being a suffering servant. Rather than a vengeful judge. You are joining in the suffering of Christ. That may be one of the best ways to grow in your faith. That's the closest you'll get to a Christ-like experience where when Jesus was judged, he was a silent lamb. And on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. There may be nothing that will make you more like Christ than, than suffering when other people hate you. R.C. Sproul has this quote where it says, when I feel that I am unfairly hated, I remember that I was unfairly loved. And as Christians, if you're being faithful, there will be opposition to you. It's not a matter of if, it's when. Unrighteousness hates righteousness, and just as Abel's un- uh, righteousness magnified the unrighteousness of Cain, when the church lives righteously in the world, it will draw the hatred of the world. In the same way Cain hated Abel because he was righteous, so the world will hate the church when it is righteous. There's probably a lot of reasons why. Let's say you invite your non-Christian friend to church. Maybe they have some real legitimate reasons, practical reasons. Maybe they're just lazy. But deeper than that, it's because people in darkness don't want to come into the light. We don't want our evil deeds exposed. It's easier to just run away or avoid the sermon. In John chapter 3, verse 19-20, through 20, Jesus says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And if you're walking faithfully with the Lord, assuming, assuming you're not just being a jerk and your testimony is terrible, assuming you're being faithful before the Lord, there's always going to be an aspect where unholy people won't want to hang out with holy people. Where the unholy or the unrighteous will hate the righteous. The unrighteous will want to hang out with people who are like them, not those who expose their sin, but rather those who enable their sin. Not just those who tolerate their sin, but those who celebrate their sin. Why is it that when you hang out with your coworkers or the world and they see that you don't do certain things or you don't act a certain way, they want to make you act like them? There's something about you if you're living a righteous life that makes them feel insecure. And if you hang out with someone who is righteous, who is pursuing godliness, here's the test. Does that spur you to become more holy Or does it reveal in you a spirit of jealousy and pride and insecurity and pettiness, where you even dislike them, where you will tear them down to make yourself feel better? It's still in us. The unrighteousness in us can't stand righteousness. Do you avoid righteousness? Do you avoid those who are more mature than you? Do you you avoid those who will speak the truth and love to you because of how it makes you feel? Do you get defensive over that or are you teachable? You have a safety net in the gospel. John says, don't be surprised that the world will turn against Christ. You, against Christians, don't be surprised as if it's strange that the darkness would hate the light. Don't be naive. They did this to Jesus, and they will do this to Jesus' servants. It shouldn't surprise the church that true children of God will be opposed and hated. People will sever relationships with you. You'll be looked down upon. You'll be criticized, misrepresented. And the Christian life will include unresolved conflicts. Sometimes even our best efforts won't deliver the resolution we desire. We won't have closure in a lot of different things, at least not until we get to heaven. You know, when I was in seminary, it's like so naive, so naive, where I just think, you know, just preach the gospel, try to love people, try to live a good life, and everyone will just always get along. When in fact, if you are living a godly life, it won't lead to everyone getting along. It'll create division. It should create division. And we have to examine ourselves that maybe the reason everyone likes us is because there is nothing at all offensive about us. For what fellowship does light have with darkness? It should create division. Not because of our sin. Not because we're jerks. Because they see something Christ-like in us and they don't like it. And the church will either turn off its light to accommodate this and not be hated, or it will continue to live in the light and be hated. Don't be surprised, John says, so that we won't be unsettled by it in that moment of temptation, in the moment of conflict, that is when the deeper things of faith, the deeper spiritual things will show up. Anyone can measure their faith by how much they read the Bible, or I go to church, or I sing the songs, or I participate in small group, and all these different actions, but it's things like forgiveness, peacemaking, humbling yourself, repenting of your sins. You'll either respond with hate or you'll respond with love. That moment will show your faith. And it's love that is the evidence of life. Love for your brother is a sign that you've passed from death to life. Verse 11 through 15 says, don't be like Cain. He starts with a negative example. But in verse 16 through 18, he comes to the positive example, the illustration of love, our second point. In verse 16, he says, by this we know love. Love. That he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And especially in our society where we throw the word love around and it's lost all meaning, we need a real definition of love. Our society says, you know, it's all about love. All we need is love. And that's generally just a catch-all. Maybe we need tolerance or we just need to get along. And we don't even agree what all of that means. But John says, this is how we know what love is. And he points to Christ and teaches us that self-sacrifice is the essence of love. Love will manifest itself in self-sacrifice. Love, if I had to give it a definition, is the giving of oneself for the benefit of another. John Stott, he summarizes this section so well. He says, Hatred characterizes the world whose prototype is Cain. It originates in the devil, issues in murder, and is evidence of spiritual death. Love characterizes the church whose prototype is Christ. It originates in God, Issues in self-sacrifice and is evidence of eternal life. Cain raised his hand in anger to destroy his brother. Jesus took up the form of a servant and washed their feet. When was the last time you washed a fellow believer's dirty feet? When was the last time you showed grace to someone in their ugliness? And one of the lessons of 1 John... he's going to constantly pound this in, is that there has to be a connection between our knowledge of the gospel and the power of godliness that has to show up. Because if Jesus laid down his life for us, you notice it doesn't just end there. He doesn't just say, oh, it's nice that Jesus laid down his life for us. That's great news. He says, if that is true, here are the implications. If Christ laid down his life for us, we should lay down our lives for one another. This is where faith lives, where the rubber meets the road. And as Christians, we can acknowledge, we can acknowledge honestly, that not every child of God is equally likable. We can even say there are some children of God we won't like. They repented of their sins. They're children of God. They're going to heaven, but you don't like them. And I'm trying to avoid like looking at people so I don't want you to think it's like I'm thinking of you, right? I'm not. Okay. I'm not. Okay. Let me look at. It. Let me just look ahead, okay? <laughs> Their personality may rub you the wrong way. You may even be repelled by them in some ways. And maybe they don't like you. Maybe they're not mature enough. Maybe you're not mature enough. Probably both. Whatever it is, there are people in the kingdom of God you won't necessarily like, but you are called to love. Of course, it would be easy if we all just got along so naturally, if we just liked each other. But then, what difference would there be between the church and any secular community? The real test is whether we'll love those who you don't like or those who don't particularly like you. It's so much easier to love the world, to love strangers, do all this humanitarian work for people you don't even know, but can you love that one annoying person that you see week by week? Or do you have to sit far away from them, avoid them altogether, banish them from your presence as if they never existed? When we love a stranger, let's say a homeless person or someone we don't know, when we love strangers, you're not really putting that much on the line. You haven't tied your heart to their heart. You haven't connected your life to theirs. If they do something wrong, it won't really hurt you very much. But how good are we at loving those In our daily lives it's easy to ignore the people we don't want to love but how good are we at loving those who are just so hard to love that's actually the measure of how loving you are isn't it true that we need Jesus And we can all agree to this sitting in church. We can affirm what John says is good. Yes, it's good. We need to love the, one another. We need to love the brothers and sisters. We need to love those who are hard to love. But here's a scenario, and he gets real practical. If anyone has the world's goods and and, need, and sees his brother in need, but we close off our heart, how does God's love abide in him? And he's assuming here, you have the world's goods. That's us that's believers, that's the church. You have the resources to help those around you and maybe God has made known a need to you. In this example, physical, it's opening up wallets. But whether it's spiritual or physical, the believer here recognizes that he can meet a need, but instead of doing something, he closes his heart, his inner parts. he closes down his compassion. That's the idea here. It's the word... For like our bowels, it's our splagnon, that's what it means in the Greek. It's that inner part of us. We shut it off. We shut off our feelings. And if that's our habit, the love of God is not in us because we make no sacrifice for anyone else. We're dominated by our selfishness. And the response we can fall into when we're talking about hatred is maybe... At its highest level, hatred turns into indifference. Indifference is where we close our heart or apathy. We look at someone to say like, you're not even worth my time. You're not even worth my anger. Tim Keller says the opposite of love is not anger, it's indifference. And maybe it's not simply indifference. Maybe, for some of us, maybe it's self-preservation, self-protection. That's the opposite of giving of yourself for the benefit of another, self-protection. I was taken once, it won't happen to me again. And we close our hearts because we've been hurt and it's painful to love. It's painful to care. And there's legitimate reason to even be afraid. Because in relationships with flawed people, no one is always going to make the right choices. No one is always going to be noble in their intentions. No one is always going to be free of selfishness or self-absorption. No one is always going to be perfectly loyal or always have your back. To love is to open yourself up to hurt. To love is to risk. If I open up my arms to give someone an embrace, that is a very vulnerable position. And someone can hurt you. And so instead, we live independent lives. We don't open up our hearts. We won't carry other people's burdens. We stay at a nice, safe distance. And we think... I don't want to get too involved because I may have to suffer. And so we close our hearts and say, I'll just move away. I'll just get away. Man, I understand that sentiment if that's where you're at. That's easier. Avoid it altogether. Give up on church. Give up on people. And our hearts become shriveled. C.S. Lewis has a famous quote on this. It's a little bit long, but I think it's worth reading the whole thing. It says, There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will certainly be wrong and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. And just once in my life, just once in my life, I would love to write a quote like that, right? Just, I would love to write just one time, something like that. But for Lewis and for us, love means opening our hearts to pain and sorrow, and the only alternative would be to live without love and to be alone, far away from others. There are legitimate reasons to be afraid of relationships in a broken world. We have to acknowledge we live where we live. We have to acknowledge the reality of the fall. And without the gospel, there's honestly no reason for us to risk ourselves. But I'll just say that people I've seen who have been hurt and betrayed and criticized, people who have big hearts and are tender-hearted and they suffer because of others, there is something so precious about them because in that moment, their heart doesn't become smaller, it becomes bigger. When they don't turn off, that kind of burden-bearing love is so unique, it's so special, it's God-made, it's like Christ. Brothers and sisters, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Lastly, the assurance of love. And this, first John is so challenging. If you're like me and we really face up to the truths of 1 John, at times it can be overwhelming. And if we're honest, we have this feeling within us that just says we're never enough. But I'm thankful first John verse 19 through 24 is here. And I'll just focus on the first half of this, but it says, By this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And it's good, and I think it worked out well that we're taking communion this Sunday because we're so weak. We doubt. We fall short. Genuine believers can doubt, and there may be even moments where you succumb to your doubts. And that doubt can turn into a condemning heart. And some of us are so aware of all of our flaws, and we read 1 John, and we feel like it's never enough. It's never enough. I'm never enough. I'm constantly guilty. And we're introspective, it's probably how God made you. Your constitution, spiritually and physically, makes you more prone to doubts and discouragement and feelings of self condemnation. And you look at the past two weeks. You speak on, we read about the necessity of righteousness and the test of love. And it's hard for us to think that we're passing with flying colors when we honestly look at the challenge of genuine love and self sacrifice. Now, there will come times where our hearts are legitimately unsettled. That's called our conscience. That is a God-given alert system. That pain that you feel in your heart alerts you to something you need to pay attention to, something that needs to have surgery done, listen to your conscience. But there will also come times where our hearts will unjustifiably accuse us. That's the devil's work. He is the accuser of the brethren in Revelation chapter 12. He has come to unsettle the believers so that you feel condemnation. And So how do we move from condemnation in verse 20 to the confidence before God in verse 21? How do we bridge that gap? Because I look at my week and so often what I see is not self-sacrifice, but instead a preoccupation with myself. Suffering especially makes us so self-focused. I haven't obeyed as I ought. I haven't loved as I ought. Aren't those the tests of assurance? And as I lay down in my bed at night, I can always have done more and my heart condemns me. If you're really sensitive, that can't lead to alarm or fear or uncertainty and your hearts are not at rest in God's presence because we know we fall short and we still feel the pull of our flesh and sin. But by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. There is a way for us to have our, to soothe an alarmed conscience, to quiet our troubled hearts, to calm our fears and doubts, even though we're in the presence of a holy God. And there's a point where you recognize that there is a higher court than even your evaluation, your heart's. There's a gospel that is different from your gospel of condemnation that you are preaching to yourself. Your heart is not infallible. Your doubts are not always right. You should be uncertain at times about your uncertainties. And there's a standard that is higher than my own heart where I focus on my failures, but God is greater than my heart. He knows all things. He knows He is greater than your self-condemnation. He hates your sin more than you. He knows your heart. He knows all that's in there. He knows the worst about you and me. He sees the deep things that are going on your heart. But if God is for us, who can be against us? Even ourselves. In our self-condemning attitude. Who's going to condemn you if God has justified you? What will separate you from his love? Can you separate yourself from his love? God knows everything. And he knows that deep down, even in our failures, we do love him. Peter said to the Lord after his failure, Lord, you know I love you. God, you know. God knows. He knows. And so we avoid this morbid self-condemnation that we think is supposed to be part of the everyday life of a Christian. And while we're in the flesh, we will never be perfectly good. But because our, our works are wrought by the Spirit, are enabled by the Spirit, they can still be truly good. And our Father accepts us despite our stumblings and flaws. And the law of God is doing what it was meant to do. It was first meant to be a teacher or a tutor to lead you to Christ, where your conscience bothers you. There's dissonance in your heart. You mourn over your sin. But you don't stop there and stay in your guilt, and you don't doubt God's love. You don't doubt God's grace and his forgiveness. We don't give in to our emotions and our flesh and our feelings that want to give in to despair. But at that moment we pray and the spirit comes in and he testifies to our heart. You are not condemned. You are my child. You are a child of God, Romans chapter 8. And we have communion representing the blood and body of Jesus. Why? To bring the cross before you, to remember the cross of Jesus, to remember the wonder that God who rules the universe should send his one and only son to die so that we who rebelled against him can enter into this relationship and have communion with him so that we remember our sins are covered and paid for, and you could be freed from condemnation because you understand the work of God in Christ. So as we take communion, this is a time for us to run to the Father, pour your hearts out to Him with freedom, believing that He will give you what you need without reluctance, and so you approach Him boldly, Knowing that in Luke 15, we see the picture of a father who runs towards you in your sin. If God knows everything, then he knows how often our love for our brothers and sisters is so weak. He knows our motives. He knows the resolves of our heart. He knows where we are in our spiritual condition. He sees our weak obedience. And he wants you to confess and depend on him. Confess and own up to the fact that you often love yourself more than you love others that you love your own comfort more than his glory. Confess the places where you have not lived out the gospel. Ask God to give you the eyes to see where you are in danger and to grow you in faith and in repentance and preach the gospel, the true gospel to yourself that says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there is no pit of life or your heart that Jesus cannot reach. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He recognizes us in our faltering convictions and limited love and partial obedience. And yet, He knows there's evidence in our hearts of our relationship with Him as our Father. He looks at us as children who oftentimes stumble, who aren't doing well. But when your heart accuses you, remember that God is greater than your heart. When your heart condemns you, remember that God is greater in your heart. Let's pray. Father, your word says that for those who ask, you will hear and you will give us what we need. So as your children right now, we are asking that you would lead us that you would make us more righteous, more repentant, more free. That you would help us to remember the riches of your grace that we have in Christ. That you would give us a conviction of our sin and an awe at our Savior. It's easy for us to trust our own hearts, but I pray, we pray that it would not be our voice we hear, it would be your spirit's voice that we would hear. And there would be freedom in the gospel. Help us God now in our weakness to preach the true gospel to our hearts. to remember that you are greater. You know all things, but you are greater. And so as we take communion, I pray that this would be something where we truly experience the gospel once again. We would remember that Jesus died for our sins. The seriousness of our sins, that your son had to die to pay the penalty. And we would remember amazing grace. So give us hearts that are rightfully and in a godly manner introspective. And ultimately, may we look outside ourselves and turn to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.